0: This is the Jude podcast part two. I told you when I started that it was a short little book with only 24 verses, but an awful lot of background material because Jude refers to a lot of extra biblical literature, other writings that do not rise to the level of scripture, but to which he refers. They would have been known by the people who read this letter but they aren't known to us. So I'm trying to fill in some of the backgrounds and the ideology that they would have approached this with. I am picking up with verse 7. Um, Jude refers to Sodom and Gomorrah here. We find the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, verses 4 through 11. In Sodom and Gomorrah, they preyed on one another sexually. Um, in particular, they preyed on Outsiders, newbies, visitors, or foreigners. Um, it says that they pursued unnatural lust, that they went after other flesh. So they went after. There was an exploitative um, using. They were driven to reach sexual climax, to reach sexual conquest in a way that was exploitative and predatory on one another. Um, all three examples. Um, show people once in God's favor who rejected God's favor and then went against God. And so it's there are three cautionary tales about don't let this happen to you. Don't once be a person who is inside God's grace and then let people draw you away and make you actually an enemy of God. Because the ultimate destination of those who do is is eternal fire or hell. And we move into a separate little portion of this letter in verses 8 through 13. Um, There were false dreamers in Israel. You can find some of those in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. The church seems to be experiencing the same temptations that God's people have always faced. The false teachers appear to be claiming that angels have come to them in dreams or in response to what Jesus has revealed to them in the dreams. Um, And so now this is slander against the glorious ones, the true angels. So what is happening is slandering faithful angels. It's slandering Christ. It's slandering the gospel. In verse 9, we have another reference to yet another Jewish text This is called the Testament of Moses. This talks about the archangel Michael and the devil who engage in a legal dispute. Satan lies. After all, he is the father of all lies. And Michael appeals to God to judge or punish him rather than himself. So Michael doesn't claim any authority of his own. He only claims, I can't judge you and punish you. God is the one who judges and punishes. There's also a story um, called The Assumption of Moses. It's from the first century. It's what we call apocryphal and pseudopigraphal. Apocryphal simply means is of, of doubtful authenticity. It's widely circulated and put forth as being true, but we can't we don't have good solid reason to believe it was actually authored by who it says it's authored by or that the information contained inside it is actually correct, truthful, and happened. Pseudepigraphal means it's actually attributed to a writer who didn't write it. So the Assumption of Moses is one of those tales. And in the Assumption of Moses, there are secret prophecies that Moses shares with Joshua before he passes his leadership to him. When God calls Moses to go up on the mountain and receive the Ten Commandments And the law, we get those 10 commandments. We get the law that Moses writes down, but that's not all that Moses got. Moses got a lot more information and wisdom given to him by God, but it wasn't for everybody. Everybody wasn't ready. And so Moses only passes it on to Joshua before he passes leadership to him. Joshua only continues to share it with those who, who are ready. So it's secret knowledge that only go to a few. And they say that this happened because you remember the people were afraid when they saw Moses after Moses had been with God, his face shone and they're frightened of being that close to holiness. So that's why Moses and Joshua, just a few, are the only ones who go up the mountain. And Moses is the only one who actually fellowships directly with God. There are other stories that may also be influencing what is said here. One of those is there's a Jewish tradition that says Michael is the grave digger for the just. So when people who are righteous and just pass away, Michael comes, collects their bodies, and digs their grave for them. So this story appears in the Apocalypse of Moses. There. Um, Another story is an accusation by Michael against Azael. Um, in the book of Enoch. Uh, Another story is that the angel of the Lord um, is not rebuking Satan over the body of Joshua, um, the high priest in Zechariah 3. Okay, so in Zechariah 3, y'all excuse me, I'm stumbling all over my words as I try to record this today. In the prophet Zechariah, in the third chapter, Zechariah has a vision of the high priest Joshua and um, Satan so the high priest Joshua is standing before an angel of the Lord Satan is standing at the right hand to accuse him and uh, an angel of the Lord is sent to rebuke but that angel does not rebuke in his own name but refers to the rebuke as coming from God. Understand that the name Joshua also is Jeshua in Hebrew or Yeshua or Messiah. So the name Jesus is the same name, Joshua. So when Jesus comes, he actually is bearing the same name as many other characters um, in the Bible already have. Many believe that Jude is referring here to Zechariah 3, um, and he changed the name of the body to avoid confusion with the body of Jesus. Or it got changed in copying, or it got changed in the oral history as it was passed down. So there could be a lot of things informing what we have here in Jude's letter. Um, The archangel Michael is named in Scripture, in Daniel chapter 10, verses 13 and 21, in Daniel 12, verse 1, and in Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9. These teachers, the bottom line is that they are usurping authority. That that authority belongs to God in Jesus and is coming to us through the apostles. Um, there is something that a divine being like Michael refused to do, uh, even an archangel refused. To be as uppity and usurping of authority as these false teachers are being, this is incredible arrogance, and they ought to be afraid. Also, in the Assumption of Moses, the grave digger Michael buries the body of Moses. The devil comes and wants to dig it up. He wants to make it an object of worship. There is a human tendency to want to idolize things. Um, we do it with holy relics. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was um, they were instructed to take a pole, to put a snake on it, to hold it up because the people were being bitten. And all who looked upon the cross that had the, the serpent on it would be healed of it. Um, and that became an object of worship. It became an idol of theirs um, down through history. In early Christian history, there were relics. This was the finger of one of the apostles or a splinter from the cross, and we would all go out to see it. We still do it now. Um, just recently, there was a Bible that people said was leaking or oozing oil, and people lined up to stand outside for hours to get a glimpse of this Bible. But we also idolize our buildings and our property, um, our sanctuaries, our pews. We can't move things. We have to keep it and and make it an idol. We revere the object more than the experience of God that it represents. Um, So it's a a human tendency that has always been with us. This group of false teachers are most likely what we call the Gnostics. Their name is derived from the Greek word for knowledge or Gnosko. They claim salvation or practices that are unique. They have a unique awareness. They have secret and higher knowledge that's only given to a few. Their reasoning is no better than that of animals. Um, this, is, this is ridiculous reasoning. It makes no sense. They're acting like the uncivilized. Their behaviors will destroy their earthly lives, and it's going to destroy their afterlife if they persist in this way. In verse 11, we have a thread of rebellious figures. Um, Cain comes to us from Genesis 4, 6, 1 through 16 and 1 John three twelve, um, Balaam we have his story in Numbers chapter thirty one verses fifteen and sixteen, and Korah is in Numbers chapter sixteen verses one through thirty five. Um, they're following Cain's example. This seems to rely on the idea of Cain being jealous of Abel's relationship with God and his acceptance by God, particularly his acceptance of his sacrifice. Cain's jealousy is what leads him to anger and his anger leads him to murder. These false teachers are jealous of true believers and the relationship that they have with God. They're jealous of the apostles. They want the authority they have. Um, and they don't realize that that kind of authority, that kind of blessing by God comes from obedience. Um, they're jealous of the leaders, and they're willing to lead others into error. And in they're spiritually killing other believers uh, with because of the root of their jealousy. Balaam's error. Um, Balaam was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse um, evil. He, w- he was not able um, to curse uh, Israel as he was um, hired to do. Um, and since he wasn't able to do it, he recommended that they intermarry. Like, I can't curse them, but you can intermarry with them. Like, have your Moabite women go marry the Israelite men, and they'll eventually lead them astray. Um, do it from the inside. The teachings of the false teachers amount to an intermarriage of ideas that will lead us away from God. Um, in particular, the sexual acts that they are encouraging them to commit or not to um, give up is like marrying themselves to these false teachers. In the ancient world, marriage was actually the marriage act. There wasn't a ceremony. There wasn't a license to go apply for down at the judge of probate. When the marriage was arranged by families, they would throw a party, but basically the marriage was considered to happen when the bridegroom came and collected the groom and slept with the bride. That act of sleeping together sealed the marriage. Korah's rebellion. um, Korah and some rebelled against Moses' leadership. Uh, Korah took on the role of a priest when God said that only Aaron and Aaron's sons were to do that. These false teachers are rejecting authority, that of the church leaders who have been called and appointed by God. They're putting themselves in a role that God has not called them to, and they're doing it out of selfish interest. Um, verse 12, blemishes on the love feast. Uh, blemishes is a word that could also be translated reefs. I know that sounds really odd, but um, the imagery is of the rocks on which ships would wreck. Uh, they Reefs grow on. They're barnacles. Blemishes that start and grow and get larger. They attach to other things. And while they may look pretty to the eye, they are dangerous. They start, they grow, they attach and latch onto, but they will shipwreck you. The love feasts, um, love feasts were um, common in early Methodism. And the idea in early Methodism was a sharing of bread and water. They would come together for love feasts. Instead of communion with bread and wine, bread and grape juice, they would share bread and water. They would take an offering, usually for the poor, and have a time of testimony. Um, The term love feast really occurs only here in the New Testament, um, and it's not in the Old Testament at all. But a love feast or an agape feast in the New Testament appears to be a fellowship meal where the church came together for a time of eating. It was a communal meal not just for sustenance, but also for socializing, for fellowship, for getting to know one another, for developing deep relationships for truly becoming a family of God. We also see these referenced in Acts 2 verses 46 and 47 and in 1 Corinthians 1117 through 34 as well as Luke 22:19. Most likely, They also had a time of remembering Jesus' Passover meal with the disciples that has come to us as Holy Communion. Um, But it was coming to be abused. Um, There was gluttony. There was favoritism. So the rich were having a better meal than the poor. That's the opposite of the purposes for which the meal existed, which is to get to know one another. They were engaging in drunkenness, and it was getting out of control. Some denominations still observe love feasts. In the United Methodist Church, we have instructions for how to conduct a love feast. It comes to us through the Moravians, who were very influential on John Wesley. It comes to us through the Brethren and through the old German Baptist tradition, where you would have a foot washing, um, a love feast or a meal, and then the observance of communion. These false teachers, as I've already mentioned earlier, may have been trying to turn these in turn a love feast into a different kind of love feast into an orgy. Uh, they are feeding themselves, meaning they are only caring about themselves and their own personal motives. They are waterless clouds. Um, check out Proverbs 25:14 for some more imagery of that. Uprooted trees see Matthew 3:10 and 7:19. They are twice dead. They are both fruitless, and now uprooted. So they weren't bearing fruit, and now they've lost their ability to even um, draw up any sustenance and ever have any hope of, of bearing fruit. The picture is of absolute spiritual barrenness and absolute uselessness. In verse 13, um, he speaks of waves. This hearkens to Isaiah 57, 20. Wild waves, they stir up the dirt, they muddy the water. Um, Wild waves would create bad water. There's foam. If you've ever been to the beach and seen the froth that um, comes up on the shoreline, it it really kind of grosses me out. You also can see it on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and particularly at the Dead Sea during certain times of the year. Um, But this froth or foam would litter the coast line. These false teachers have frothy words um, full of bubbles but no sus- substance. And it's um, their unclear ideas are really just trash. They're just littering up the shoreline of life and good teaching. You're going to have to step over them and avoid the bad water. Uh, he also speaks of wandering stars, um, there were sh- These would be shooting stars, stars that move in the night sky. They were often short-lived. They were comets. They're, they are passing across the sky rather than standing still and firm and shining brightly. They're trackless and they're momentary. All right. In verses 14 and 15, we see Genesis 5, 21 through 24. Um, God handles these type of people. God will take care of it. We just need to avoid them. Avoid them and don't be them. Um, cross-reference this with Matthew 24, 30, and 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. I'm going to push on and get, get through the end, so this is going to be just a few more minutes longer. or hang in here with me. Verse 16, There were Israelites who rebelled in the desert. They were called grumblers. We remember that. They grumbled every chance they got. Numbers Fourteen verses 2, 27, 29, and 36. In verses 17 through 23, we have another section of this short letter. He says, but you, beloved, he wants to contrast how believers should behave, how they're going to act. He's contrasting that with the behavior of the false teachers. This harkens back to verse 3, where um, he talked about the beloved. Now he's talked about the false teachers. Now he's going to shift back to talking about the beloved, the recipients of this letter. In verse 18, it corresponds really closely with 2 Peter 3.3. 3. In fact, he's actually quoting from that verse. Also check out Matthew 24, verses 24 and 25 on predictions of false teachers and how those should be treated. Verses 20 and 21, the behavior of all believers is to avoid falling for the false teachers. Um, Stay firm in the most holy faith. This is the teachings of the apostles about Jesus Christ. Love like Jesus and God. Um, Pray, be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Use the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit. Remember that from Ephesians 6, verses 17 and 18. In verse 21, We need to anticipate the mercy that Jesus will bestow on us when he returns. The present mercy that we're experiencing includes the forgiveness of our sins. And in the future, that mercy will include the gift of eternal life, of heaven, of being in the presence of God, of being reunited with others who have gone on before us. Verse 22, those with genuine doubt are not the same as those who are in rebellion and arrogance. Believers need to be patient and gentle to answer the questions, to participate with the Holy Spirit in trying to draw those who do not yet believe, who have genuine doubt or questions. Um, Don't be irritated with those who are trying to find their way in faith. Um, People are sometimes going to get it wrong. They're going to come to a wrong conclusion. They're going to Follow a wrong doctrine for a while. Don't hate or write off people who get it wrong. They're different than the ones who are actually being false teachers, who have an agenda, who are living in rebellion, who are no longer listening to the Holy Spirit, and who are um, living in pride and arrogance and unrepentant sin. If you are patient with them, if you... um, try to help them come back to correction, you would be snatching them out of the fire. Verse 23, if we saw someone who was stumbling and falling into a fire, into, say, a campfire, would we not reach out and try to grab them, to pull them away, to stop them from that? Or if we came upon someone who has fallen or maybe passed out and they are too close to the fire, they're getting burned, would we not pull them back from that danger. What Jude is saying is that people are being taken in by these false teachers, by this demonic devil teaching of the world and of the false teachers, that it is just as real a danger, that spiritual danger is real, and we need to do what we can to protect people from it through patience, through love, through mercy, through grace, through good sound teaching, through not shying away from developing relationships that give us the ability to speak truth with love and to hold one another accountable for living sound, solid doctrine and a faithful Christian life. So we extend mercy to the rebellious carefully. Of of course, it would be absolutely great if we could bring everyone back to true faith. But it's not acceptable for us to be drawn into their immorality. So we need to watch ourselves as we try to witness to those who don't yet know we cannot get drawn away from our faith. We need to be the bigger influencer, drawing them to God rather than them drawing us away from God. And we do this with fear, um, with reverence, with being careful, with watching ourselves. And finally, verse 24 is the benediction of this letter written to many, um falling is the author's chief fear for these believers that they will fall away from the faith it is possible to believe and fall away this is something that we as methodist christians believe we retain our free will even after our choice to come to christ There are some streams of Christianity. In particular, we're surrounded by a lot of Baptists who believe in what's called perseverance of the saints, that once you've prayed the sinner's prayer, once you've made a profession of faith, you can never, ever lose it, no matter what you do. Um, We believe that you can, that you still retain free will. You never accidentally get lost from the family of God, and God never gets so angry he thumps you out. He simply sees you as a rebellious child, but you can By your own free will, choose to remove yourself from the family of God and the grace of God. God can keep us and does keep us as far as God can without violating the free will that he chose to give human beings at creation. Um, Check out Ephesians 5 verse 27 where there's a picture of Jesus um, here retaining us without blemish. John 15 says we are the vine Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. We must stay connected. Um, We must allow the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Let the Spirit do the Spirit's work in you. Um, Jesus is glory, divine. Jesus is majesty, amazing, awe-inspiring. Jesus is powerful, able. Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the one to whom we look and not to false teachers. These belong to Jesus These beloved, um, these false teachers do not, and the beloved do not belong to the false teachers. Um, Stay away from these who are apparently imparting dream instructions. And he goes on to, to say, it's always been Jesus. It always has been. Jesus was always the plan. Jesus always will be. It's always Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And then he closes with amen, which means so be it or let it be so. And so it is very, very truly. So this is the very um, impactful little power-packed book of Jude, short in length, but filled with a lot of stories that we wouldn't have known that the early people did, but a strong intervention and a warning against false teachers. We still have those in the church today, and that's why it would have become part of our New Testament canon.